Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, have you ever been part of an exclusive club? Like a group of people where you had to really qualify to be a part of it. Let let me tell you about some of the most exclusive groups in the world. Have you heard of Club 33? Club 33. This is an exclusive restaurant, a private restaurant at Disneyland. Okay, you can only get in if you're a member. And it costs $25,000 just to join and $10,000 a year to stay in the group. And that's just before you start paying for the food. There is a 14-year waiting list to get into this group. What about the Giga Society? Okay, the Giga Society is sort of like Mensa, like it's a club for smart people, you know, people with high IQs. And the standards for the Giga Society are so incredibly high that only six people in the world qualify to be in it. Now, you might think that the conversations there are very stuffy and stodgy, but I'll tell you, the the other five guys there are actually a lot of fun. We have a great time. What about the Ejection Thai Club? Okay, the Ejection Thai Club is a club for pilots, fighter pilots, who have had to eject from their plane. So the company that makes ejection seats, Martin Baker, they actually, when someone uh, is ejected from a a plane crash and they survive, they actually send them a commemorative tie and a watch uh, that's only available for people uh, who've been through that. It's just under 6,000 people are a part of that. Or what about the 300 Club? This is my favorite, okay? To get in the 300 Club, you have to be a scientist at the South Pole. And you gotta be there on a day when it's 100 degrees below zero. And so what they do is they actually have a sauna at the base and they they heat it up to 200 degrees. So there's a 300 degree difference between the sauna and outside. And you go in the sauna and heat up for a while. And then when you come out, you immediately go outside and run a lap around the South Pole completely naked. Now, I I know that these are brilliant scientists down there doing this, but I'll tell you, the members of the Giga Society are not doing something that dumb, all right? (laughs) Now, each of these groups have very specific standards, and if you don't measure up, you don't get in. But today, we are gonna be talking about a place that has an even higher standard than that. This week is our second week in our series, Songs of Hope. We're looking at the book of Psalms, And the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. This is a collection of prayers, worship songs from across Israel's history that have been sung for millennia by God's people. They've been sung in the temple and in synagogues, in monasteries, around family dinner tables, uh, with choirs in grand cathedrals and in hidden gatherings of persecuted believers. Even Jesus prayed these prayers, sang these songs. He, He learned them as a child from his mother Mary, and he sang them all the way to the day that he died. These songs are a precious gift. These are words that we know God wants to hear from us, and they're words that he wants to shape our hearts, and so that's why we're studying them. Uh, Today's psalm is Psalm 15, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Psalms is really easy to find. It's a big book, and it's right in the middle, so if you open halfway up, you'll probably find it, uh, and we'll be in Psalm 15 today. Let me read this to you. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tents? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind 
who lends money to the poor without interest, and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this psalm starts with two questions I've never heard anybody ask. It says, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And if you are new to reading the Bible, I'm sure these have you scratching your head. And even if you've been a longtime Bible reader, you might be thinking, what in the world is this all about? Like, I, I have a couple of ideas, but why are these important questions? So let me break it down for you, okay? First thing you need to think about is, what is this sacred tent that it's talking about? Now, the sacred tent is a, another reference to the tabernacle. So God told the people of Israel to build him this large tent, which is a weird request, until you realize that everybody in Israel at the time lived in a tent. And so essentially what God was saying is, I'm moving into the neighborhood. So this tabernacle was the place where God said, I'm going to meet with you. This is where heaven and earth are going to overlap, and I will live among you there in that tent. What about this holy mountain that it talks about? Holy mountain. Well, this could refer to one of two places, either Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Zion was in Jerusalem. It's actually the place where the tabernacle ended up. It's kind of the final uh, you know, you know, parking spot for it. And they eventually built a permanent building, a temple, to replace the tabernacle there. So it was there on Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the place where Israel went after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. So if you've seen any of the Moses movies, you might have this picture in your head, you know, the cloud, God comes down in a thunder cloud and Moses goes up on the mountain and he speaks with God and hears from God in his presence. So both of these places are places where human beings come into God's presence. They're, they're talking about the same thing. Both of these questions are basically asking, who is able to actually come into the presence of God? And this is an incredibly important question to answer because God's presence is the place you want to be. It is the place you want to be. Even if you don't realize it, that's where you want to be. If you ask someone what they want out of life, you will get a lot of different kinds of answers. Some people will say, well, I, I want a successful career or I, I want to meet and marry my soulmate. I, I want good health and a long life. I wanna make money, I wanna make a difference, I wanna eat lots and lots of bacon. People have all sorts of different pursuits. And when we pursue these things, the, the truth of the matter is, we're not actually pursuing just those things. We're using those things as a means to meet one of the deep desires and needs of our hearts. What, what we really long for with these things are things like security, or the experience of being loved and accepted or of finally being rid of our fear and shame. We want deep joy and lasting satisfaction. We want meaning and purpose. We want freedom. We want to feel alive. And so when we're reaching out for these things, we are reaching out for a life that feels whole and full to us. And, and the Bible actually gives an explanation for why we do this, why we long for these things. It's because we were made for God, and God is the source of all of these things. We may find some of them, a little measure of those in our relationships or our careers or our entertainment, but what our hearts really long for, we can't get from any of those things. We've got to get it from God. And so whether we know it or not, that's what we are longing for. That's where the ache in our soul comes from. Our hearts can only be satisfied in God's presence. And so that's why the psalmist is asking, God, who can go into your, your holy tent? Who can go on your holy mountain? Because he's asking, what is, who are the people who can actually go to the one place where our deepest needs can be satisfied and our souls can be fulfilled? 
See, originally we were actually made in the presence of God. In the Garden of Eden, that's what the whole story is about. It's about what it's like to actually be with God. You, you could say that God's presence is our natural habitat. That, that's where we were meant to be. But when we rejected God, when we said, you know, God, we, uh, we'll, we'll run our own lives. We'll do our own things. We'll figure it out on our own. We got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We, we got uh, alienated from God's presence. We couldn't go back in. And so this is a serious problem because we need to get back into God's presence. Like it is not an option, it is a necessity because outside of God's presence, it is a mess. It is a mess and it makes sense, right? Like if you walk away from the source of joy, what do you get? Suffering, emptiness. You walk away from the source of love, you get conflict, you get selfishness. You walk away from the source of justice and what do you get? You look around, you get the world that we have. When you walk away from life, you get death in all its forms. We need to get back into God's presence. And so here's the question I wanna ask you. Are you seeking God's presence in your life? This should be the driving question of your life. God, I wanna be with you. God, how can I experience more of you? God, how can I be as near to you as I possibly can be? This is what I need, God. And if that's the driving question of your life, it's gonna show up. There's gonna be evidence of it in your schedule, in your conversations, and the things you prioritize, the things you let slip. The, the people around you, people closest to you should be able to say, that person, she wants God more than anything. He wants to be in the presence of God. That's what drives them. Would, would that be true of your life? If I'm honest, this is a, a challenging question even for me as a pastor. I spend a lot of time working for God, and there are times when that can mask the seasons when I'm not actually spending time with God. I can have lots of conversations about God, but not actually prioritize my conversations with God. What about you? Are you pursuing, seeking God's presence in your life? Because I'll tell you this, whatever else you might be chasing after, being with him, that is the place you really want to be. But what is the answer to the question? Psalmist asks, who can be in God's presence? The, the rest of the Psalm gives the answer. The rest of the Psalm describes the only one who can be there, the only one who can be there. Now, if you ask the average person today, who can access God? Almost anybody who believes in God would say, well, anybody could, right? Like you, anybody could kind of reach out and interact with God. Now, that's not the answer most people in the past would have given. They would, they would have said, well, if you wanna get to God, you gotta go to a temple or you know, do a ritual or a sacrifice or find a priest, some, a mediator of some kind to get to God. But in our modern world, we've kind of you know, privatized and individualized our spirituality. You know? So uh, we, we meditate and we journal and we walk around in nature and we kind of connect with God on our own. And, and there's a, a bit of insight to this. I mean, God is everywhere. You know, the, the apostle Paul, he said, uh, in God, we live and move and have our being. He is not far from any of us. And so there, there's a natural sense of like, well, shouldn't we be able to just reach out and access God's presence? And that's partially true but it's not the whole story. Because in another sense, when we reach out to get to God, there's actually a barrier there, something that blocks us. I mean, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God put an angel in front of the entrance with a flaming sword, so they couldn't just get back in. You can't just waltz into God's presence. And so whatever glimpses of God we get in life, we are cut off from the full, unveiled presence of God. Why is that? Well, think about it. If God's presence is the place of wholeness and fullness, what the Bible calls shalom, 
You can't just bring anything into that environment and expect it to stay whole and full. God's presence is the place where things are meant to be. And so you can't just you know, bring in something that's not the way it's supposed to be. I can't walk into perfection and it stay perfect. And, and so when it asks the question, who can dwell in your holy tent? The, the real question is, who actually fits in a world that's made right? In a world that is whole? Who would actually belong there? And when you put it that way, the standards are incredibly high. I mean, look at verse two. It just puts it out there. Who can be in God's presence? The one who is blameless, who does what is righteous. Blameless. No, no, you cannot blame them for anything. You can't pin anything on them. If you ever meet someone who you can't pin anything on, you know, you're like, I, they just seem squeaky clean. I have no idea where their flaws are. Don't trust that person, right? Like, you don't know those kind of people. Righteous. Righteous actions are the kind of actions that move us toward, toward the sort of world we should have. Are all of your actions righteous? Who can be in God's presence? Verse two continues. The one who speaks the truth from their heart. Have you ever known someone who's just refreshingly honest? I don't just mean that they don't lie. I mean, I mean they don't spin things. Like you can use you know, true facts, but paint a different picture than reality, right? But have you ever known someone who speaks with candor, who doesn't seem to be hiding things? Those people are incredibly refreshing to be around. It's so easy to misrepresent reality. I mean, you find yourself doing it sometimes without even thinking it, don't you? I mean, sometimes, I, this is an occupational hazard for a preacher. Sometimes I can tell a story, and it might be a true story, but I look way better in the story than I actually am, right? You can uh, describe a situation that you're going through, and you describe the situation, and you're always either the victim or the hero, but you're never the villain, right? Like, you're never the bad guy in your own story. You can describe, you know, a conflict or a debate or something, and you can present the facts in such a way that it makes your opinion seem obvious and the other person seem ridiculous. You're not exactly lying, but you're not speaking the truth from your heart. This is especially tempting online. Online. Just recently read this book. It's an excellent book. Uh, it's called My TechWise Life by Amy Crouch. Uh, Amy is uh, 19, or at least she was when she wrote the book, and she wrote this primarily about uh, the effect of uh, the use and misuse of technology for teenagers and young adults, uh, but it, it applies to people of all ages. It's really, really wise. Uh, I love the approach that she gives because it's really a life-giving approach. Just listen to some of the uh, titles of her chapters. She's got a chapter that's called, We Don't Have to Compare Ourselves. We Don't Have to Be Distracted. We Don't Have to Be Disconnected. Like I said, it's a really wise book. But my favorite chapter title that she has is this. We don't have to edit our lives. We don't have to edit our lives. She actually cites research that says uh, at least 50% of young people say that, that when they post online, they have made things up to make their life seem more exciting or interesting to the people who see their post. And my guess is that's not just limited to young adults. That the internet makes it so easy for us to hide, so easy for us to misrepresent reality, to paint things much better than they actually are, to avoid speaking the truth from the heart. Keep reading. Look at verse three. Who may be in God's presence? The one whose tongue utters no slander and who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slurs on others. The other day, my wife was remembering her high school cafeteria, because who doesn't love to think about that? She was thinking about this group of girls that she sat with when she was in high school, and she was remembering how they would be really friendly when you were sitting there, you know, when you were, you were around. But then anytime someone got up from the table, 
and they'd go to the, you know, the vending machine or the lunch line or whatever, the, the entire table, they'd start gossiping and talking bad about that person the whole time they were gone. And then when they sat back down, they'd be nice and friendly and, you know, whatever again. Needless to say, Michelle didn't hang out with them for very long, but you might think, okay, that's petty teenage stuff. We all grow out of that sort of thing. But then my wife became a high school teacher, and it turns out that the staff lunchroom was just as bad. The teachers would sit around, and they'd gripe about students and parents and the administration, and when Michelle didn't join in, they turned on her. You ever been in situations like that, where it's just the norm to talk bad about the people around you? You know, talk bad about your boss or your employees. You, you grumble about your spouse to your friends. You, you complain about your parents. Maybe there's actually a particular person in your life that whenever they come up in conversation, it's almost like you can't help yourself, but you share the, the, the dirt you know about them, or the thing you dislike about them, or the thing they did wrong. And even when it's not relevant to the conversation, somehow it always ends up coming up. When we do this, we are not just hurting the other person's reputation or their relationships, we're actually hurting our own relationship with that person. I mean, think about what you're doing. When you slander another person, you are reinforcing your negative perception of them, your negative attitude toward them. And you start to feel more justified in your opinion and your actions, and you become less gracious with that person. For years, people have noted that when we're online, we tend to only pay attention to people who agree with us. You know, we, we go to all the sites and places and get our information from uh, people who reinforce our opinions. People have called this the filter bubble, right? Like you don't hear from the people who disagree with you, it might challenge your views, and it's a problem. Well, they've recently done studies that have shown that while this is partially true, it's not actually the whole picture. It turns out that most of us do actually pay attention to people who disagree with us online, but we do it in a very particular way. We look at all of the most ridiculous, extreme, stupid, offensive, embarrassing things that are done and said by people we disagree with. We, we click on all the things that make them look dumb. And what it does is it reinforces, again, what we already think. Those people are idiots and they're out to destroy everything that's good in the world. And it turns out this happens equally, whether you're on the left or the right or whatever side of an issue you're on, we all do this. We listen to people who sound reasonable that we agree with and we look at all of the fools that we disagree with and they look terrible and we look good. And so rather than interacting with someone at their very best, we parade out all the things that make them look as bad as they possibly can be. But you know what this is? It's slander. It's slander. It's misrepresenting someone. Even if you disagree with them, we don't do that. Who may be in God's presence? The one who utters no slander and casts no slur on others. Look at verse four. The person who can dwell in God's holy tent is the one who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. Now this sounds super harsh and almost like it contradicted the previous verse, right? Despise a vile person? Are we supposed to despise people? Here's what this verse is about. This is about who we hold up as examples, okay? Notice how despise is the opposite of honor in this verse. So honor means to lift something up, lift someone up and say this, this is worth looking at, this is worth imitating, this is worth, you wanna be like this person. Despise literally means to treat something as small, meaning don't fixate on it, don't, don't make a big deal out of it, don't, don't look at that as your center of attention. Despise doesn't mean to mistreat someone, okay? So don't forget the previous verse. We don't slur, we don't slander, we don't do harm to our neighbor. But what it does mean is that when you're evaluating who should I imitate, you say, this is something that's the opposite of what I wanna be like. 
And this verse should make us evaluate, okay, who are the models of success in life that we are looking at? Now, the world offers us lots of options, doesn't it? Actors and athletes and musicians, TikTok and Instagram celebrities, business leaders, entrepreneurs, the rich, the powerful, the popular, the funny, the beautiful. And sometimes, sometimes, these are people worth imitating. But it is almost never because of the qualities that made them famous. As Christ followers, we want to honor people who help us imagine life that honors God. So we might see people who might show us a way to become rich or productive or influential or famous or cool, but these things should be small in our eyes. Character and service and love. These are the things that make someone truly worthy of honor in God's kingdom, and that's who we honor then too. Let's keep reading. Who can be in God's presence? Verse four. The one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. This includes even the, the simple, small promises that we make. You don't want to be the person at work who says, yeah, I'll help out with that, and then you flake out. You don't want to be the person who says, oh, yeah, I'll help you with that home project, and then you bail. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. When you make commitments, you keep them. But of course, this gets even harder in those big promises that we make. There, there are some of you right now, you're in a marriage that's just grown stale, There isn't abuse or unfaithfulness, the kinds of things that might justify a divorce biblically. It's just no spark. Your friends and your interests, they've diverged a long time ago and now it feels like you're basically roommates. It would feel a whole lot easier, you think, you know, if if we just ended it and we started over with another person. And the the idea of kind of working it out and figuring out what you need to change, it's just so intimidating. And the idea of going to a counselor, that's overwhelming and it's like, it's so hard. You've got to ask the question, will you keep your oath, your promise, even when it hurts? I think about couples right now who are in our re-engage program. That's our, our marriage enrichment program we have. They're going through this right now, and it's amazing. These are couples who have taken the courageous step to say, we, we need to work on this. People said, I'm going to work on this. And it's hard work. Sometimes it really hurts, but man, is it worth it. I want to tell you, if you're someone who is working on a difficult marriage right now, I wanna tell you how proud I am of you, how thankful I am that you're doing that. This is something that is challenging, but I wanna encourage you, keep it up. It is worth it to keep your promise even when it hurts. Keep reading, verse five, who can be in God's presence? The one who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Now this verse describes two very specific things. It talks about not lending money to the poor with interest, okay? So it actually, in God's law, this was forbidden. So if you read the the laws in the Old Testament, it says you can't charge interest when you give a loan to someone who's in need. And the the logic makes sense. So this is a person who's already in debt and you're gonna help them out by putting them more in debt? God says that's not really help, so don't do that. The the second situation is bribes. So specifically, if you are a judge or a witness in a court case, says don't accept money to testify against someone or rule against someone who, you know, is is actually innocent or you don't actually have a a reason to testify against. So uh, very specific situations. And if you are in those kinds of situations, these are great principles to follow. But I actually think that these two things illustrate a broader approach to life that applies to lots of different situations. And it's this. A righteous person refuses to take advantage of others, especially in their time of need. In fact, they actually do the opposite. They disadvantage themselves for the sake of helping other people. So they refuse to charge interest. They can make some money off of this situation, but they don't do it. 
They refuse to be bribed. They're, this person's in a hard place, but I can make something out of it. But they don't do that. They, they stand in real solidarity with the poor and the falsely accused. Another way to put it is they never put profit over justice. Now, when I was thinking about this verse, I, I thought, you know, I've never taken a bribe before. I'm not even sure I've been offered a bribe. And probably many of you, you've never been offered a bribe. Although, this is Illinois, so you never know. <laughs> but then I was thinking a little bit more. And I realized that all of us have times where we have the opportunity to compromise what's right, to, to, to bend on our principles because it would benefit us in some way. It might not be a literal, okay, hey, if you do this, I'll give you some money. But it might be, you know, you do something a little bit iffy, but your boss is gonna be happy about the result. Or it's a little shady, but your coworkers are gonna be impressed. Or you're gonna get the decision you want or the deal you wanna make. And you get something that benefits you, but it's at the cost of your integrity. You gotta ask the question, who can actually be in God's presence? It's the person who doesn't do something wrong just because it would benefit them. Now, we get to the end of this Psalm, Psalm 15. And at the end of the list, I got two observations. First is this. It, I find it really, really interesting that at the beginning of the Psalm, the question is a vertical question, okay? Who can be with God? And all of the answers, did you notice this? They're all horizontal. They're all about relationships with other people. And I point this out because the Bible does this all the time. It always links these two, okay? So when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, actually there's two. Love God and love other people. Uh, John, he actually says, you cannot love God who you can't see if you don't love your brother who you do see. Uh, the prophets, when they're, they, all the time, they say things like, you know, you can gather for a worship service, you can offer sacrifices, but it's just noise if you ignore the needs and the injustices of the world around you. you. You cannot have the vertical without the horizontal. You can't think, I've got a good relationship with God and ignore the mess you're making in your relationships. Those two things are actually linked. The second thing I notice at the end of the psalm is this. This is the kind of world I want to live in. Like, this is the kind of person I want to be. This is the kind of person I want to be around. Like, just imagine, how much better would your life be if your family members just did these things? It'd be incredible, right? What if everybody at your workplace acted this way? What if everybody on the internet acted this way? I mean, there'd be nothing left but cute animal videos and baby Yoda memes. It would be awesome. What if all politicians acted this way? That's a little far-fetched. Don't, don't even think about that one. But you think about it. This would be paradise, right? Like this is the kind of world we want to be in. This is the reason why the person who can be in God's presence needs to be like this, because this is the way the world was meant to be. And now here's the really difficult thing about this psalm. It just ends right there. Ask some really important question. Who can be with God? and then describes the perfect person and it's over. And so you read it and it's kind of inspiring. You're like, yeah, that makes me wanna up my game in some areas of life, but then it's really deflating, isn't it? Like, how am I supposed to do this? It's this picture of this blameless, righteous person and I can never possibly live up to that. What do you do? I'm gonna to try to address that, but I'm gonna do it in a roundabout way. I'm gonna do it by teaching you how to pray this psalm how to pray this psalm, okay? God did not give us the psalms so we could just study them. He gave them because he wanted us to talk with him, okay? So recipes, you don't just look at them, you actually cook the meal. Uh, sheet music, you don't just kind of read it, you actually play the music. The psalms were made for praying. 
So I'm gonna teach you the way I pray the Psalms. Uh, And one of the ways I do this is by kind of going through six basic spiritual postures, okay? Six basic postures you could take towards God, okay? Here's what they are. First is, I love you. So it's a posture of praise and worship to God. The second is sorry. This is confession, confession of sin. The, The third is thanks. It's gratitude for the things that God has done. And then why? Why is kind of how I encapsulate lament. You know, it's the the ache of this is not how it's supposed to be. The fifth is yes, it's an openness, a commitment to God and what he offers and asks. And then please, this is when we bring our request to God. Now, there's a logic to why I have these six, but I'm not gonna unpack that today. Uh, I just wanna show you that when I'm responding to the Bible, any passage in the Bible, really, oftentimes I will cycle through and I'll actually ask the question, how is what I'm reading here how should it make me say, I love you, to God? How should it make me say sorry to God? How, how should it make me say please to God? How, how should it make me respond in these different ways? And most Psalms, you'll, you'll notice, actually emphasize one or two of these postures. It's pretty easy to see, oh, this is an I love you Psalm. This is a sorry Psalm. But there are some Psalms, like Psalm 15, where the posture is not totally clear. And especially with those, I find it really helpful to kind of go through all six to see how to respond. So that's what I want to do, okay? We're gonna, you can start anywhere, any of those six, but uh, let's start with I love you. So when you read Psalm 15, it might prompt you to say this, God, I love you. I, I want to praise you because this actually describes what you are like. The, the reason you want us to be like this is because you are like this. You are a God who is blameless and righteous. You, you are a God who always speaks the truth You are a God who always keeps your oaths. You are generous with the poor. God, I wanna praise you for being like this. I love you. Then you might continue on to why, lament. Because I'll be honest, when I I read this psalm this week, I I kinda got sad. Because I thought this, I said, God, why is this so different from the way the world is? Why is our world so far from the way it was meant to be? God, the world is so full of falsehood. God, why is the world so full of slanders and slurs, the the things that damage people? Why are the poor being taken advantage of? Why are the innocent being accused? People are doing all of these things, God, and it is ruining your world. How long will you let this go on? Why, God? But after lamenting, it's very, very natural to shift to sorry, sorry, and spend time in confession and say, God, I'm part of the problem. This passage is a mirror and it's not flattering. God, here are the ways I've wronged the people around me. Here are the ways where I've twisted the truth. I'm sorry, God. God, here are the ways where I've admired vile people instead of honoring those who fear you. I'm sorry for the ways I've broken my word. These are things that dishonor you, God. They hurt others. And it's the reason I don't belong in your presence. I'm so sorry. But then you move on and you say, yes, you make a commitment. You say, God, I do want to be this kind of person. I'm sorry for what I've done, but here and now, I want to commit to saying yes to your standard. I want to be a person of honesty. Yes, I want to be a person who who speaks well of people around me, who doesn't slander or slur. I want to commit to using my resources to help people when they're in need. God, yes, I will do these things. Now, of course, as soon as you say yes to God about these things, you realize there's no way I'm going to be able to keep that, right? And so you turn and you say, please, Say, God, please help me. Give me the power to actually do this. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Transform me into a person who when I want to lie, I actually speak the truth from my heart. 
That when I'm tempted to go back on my word, give me the strength to follow through even when it hurts. When I could take advantage of someone else's misfortune, God, give me a generous heart to serve them. God, please help me to be this kind of person. But then finally we come to thanks. And thanks is where the, the psalm cracks open and we really start to understand the deep heart of this psalm. Because at this point, we turn our eyes on Jesus and we realize he has done all of these things when we could not. And we thank him for doing those things. It turns out he was the one person who fulfills God's standard. The, the one who can really dwell on God's holy mountain in his sacred tent. Who, the one who can go into God's presence and deserves to be there. And somehow, amazingly, when we have surrendered to him, we get taken into God's presence because of Jesus. That we get united with him. And so because of that, we can actually be where we don't deserve to be. And so we thank Jesus for doing that. And so that's how I wanna close right now. I want us to pray a prayer of gratitude for what Jesus has done that we could not. Let's pray. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Only you, Jesus, only you. Jesus, we thank you for living the blameless life that we failed to live. Thank you for being righteous when we were not. Thank you, Jesus, not just for speaking the truth, but being the truth. Thank you that every word you speak can be trusted. Jesus, thank you that we, when we deserve to be slandered and slurred, your words towards us were gracious and kind. That when we were your neighbor, you did good to us. Jesus, thank you that even though we are vile people who ought to be despised, you shared your honor with us. Jesus, thank you that you kept your promise, your promise to save and rescue us and did not change your mind, even though it hurts you, even though you suffered, even though it cost you your life. Thank you for doing that. Jesus, thank you that when we were spiritually poor, you disadvantaged yourself in order to save us. Jesus, because you have done these things, you are worthy to be in God's presence. And yet somehow, amazingly, God, you have qualified us to be in his presence too. Jesus, thank you that when we couldn't meet God's standard, you met it for us. Jesus, when you did these things, it made it so that we would not be shaken. And so we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.